tuned in to KSQD FM 90.7 in Santa Cruz, California, and you're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective show here on KSQD. Today, I'm so pleased to have uh, as a guest with us, Kemi Alabi, who has received the Academy of American Poets First Book Award year, which was awarded by Claudia Rankin. Kemi is also the co-editor of the Echoing Ida collection, which is a really great literary collection that you should look up and take a peek at. And their poems have appeared, Kemi's poems have appeared in The Atlantic, Poetry, Boston Review, Best New Poets 2019, and elsewhere. As a cultural strategist, Alibi creates narrative power projects with organizers and movement builders. Born in Wisconsin on a Sunday in July, they now live in Chicago, Illinois. So I want to welcome you, Kemi, to KSQDFM and to the High Poetry Collective. Welcome to the family. Thank you so much for inviting me. Excited to chat. It's lovely to have you here. One of the things that I am so impressed about with your book, Against Heaven, is not only the, the rawness and the voice, but also it's ecclesticity. I don't know if that is, is even a word, but the form and how, how, you, how well you make use of different forms. So we'll go into that later on, but I just wanted to start that off the bat so um, my listeners could get a little bit of an idea of what, why this book I feel is so compelling and to go out and buy the book too. Kemi's gonna share a few poems from that book but to start us off, we typically ask our guest poets to begin with a poem from another poet. So Kemi has graciously agreed to do that. And Kemi, do you want to share that poem that you contributed with us? Absolutely. Uh, it is a poem by Sasha Banks, who has an incredible collection called America Mine, which came out in 2020 at a really critical time. And the poem I'd like to read from that collection is called, If I Say I Hate My Country. It could come back like a chorus or a bitch of cancer, tumor, attack of the heart, pebble in the bloodstream, carousel of spinning vertebrae, sunk kidney, strayed faculties, I heard the pastor say, unforgiveness manifests in the liver, or unforgiveness is a ghost that haunts the intestine and wears the liver loose like a new face, or unforgiveness creeps among the innards, slipping noiselessly by the blind organs to seize the liver. All this longhand meaning Either your country will kill you or your hatred will. And what lucky paradox is this body killing itself 
in defense of itself, allowed to own nothing, not even the malice of its own black heart. Oh, thank you, Kimmy, for bringing that one in particular. And this poem is really describing that Sylvan Charybdis, that hard place for so many um, Black folks in the country. And I'm very glad you brought it. Tell, tell me a little bit about what compels you about this, about Sasha's poem. The entire collection, again, is so uh, precise in its uh, uh, imagination and emotional description of what it means to be living inside and subjected to um, the oppressive forces of um, this country, this empire. And while the rest of the collection, the other poems, do operate with the speculative imagination of what it looks like to uh, build post-collapse. This particular uh, poem is situated in a kind of a, a timeline before where the speaker is living within uh, and holding on to the emotional reality of being in this antagonistic relationship with this country. And I'm very, curious about what that type of antagonism does to the body. My collection has the body as a primary subject and the relationship between the political and the personal plays out so much on the body and not just as how it's received as image, but how it's experienced internally. And there are so many amazing writers, black queer writers who left this realm far too soon from various health complications. There are so many in my community, um, in my family, in my lineage who uh, uh, leave before their time because of the corrosive effects of living here, not just because of the material disparities, but I think also because of this burdensome emotional reality. And especially at a time like this, you know, we're talking right after uh, SCOTUS overturned Roe v. Wade. We're living in a time of collective anguish and without proper outlets for that anguish, what happens to these bodies that we're struggling to find, uh, to secure autonomy over anyway, right? And so there's something really particular about the power of anger and also its corrosive effects that I feel like Sasha, especially at the end of this poem, really neatly articulates to not even be able to own the malice of its own black heart, that anger that is so righteous and true, um, to not even be able to hold on to that because of its corrosive effects. Um, it makes me very curious about the best uses for that anger, which like everything brings me back to Audre Lorde. You know, she has that um, um, essay of uses of anger. And I've been returning to that essay, especially during uh, times of uh, very clear political turmoil and uh, injustice to best understand how to hold the anger that is true, that is powerful, and that can have a catalyzing transformative impact. But there is a line. Um, at some point, it can destroy the body, destroy the community. Yeah. And I, I love your articulation of that because there is such a need 
to externalize rather than internalize that anger? And how does, how do we go about that as, as writers, poets in particular, I think are, are well poised to bring that into the external world and not allow those things to traumatize. Well, they will be traumatizing to the body, but to find an outlet for it and to speak to it. And the other thing that I wanted to comment on, on this poem in particular, and then I want to get to your poems, is that, again, the, the, the catch for Sasha between church and state in this poem, which is also so such a hideous place to be caught. And she delineates that so well in this poem. Another reason why I love it and find some kinship with this poem, I love this pastor that comes in talking about unforgiveness, and there's such a contentious relationship with the idea of forgiveness, the state of uh, Black freedom or unfreedom in this country, this idea that um, certain religious traditions might mandate a forgiveness that is not earned or not healthy. I explore in some poems in Against Heaven, um, uh, forgiveness uh, and bypassing what the pastors say. So um, that section, it's the third stanza in uh, Sasha's poem really resonates with me. Yes. And, and, you know, I couldn't help but notice that there is a lot of alignment, I think, between some of the poems in Against Heaven and Sasha's. There's a path that's being walked by both of you, I think, in some ways. I mean, even the title of your book, Against Heaven, has this, you know, overarching, overriding concern about the constraints that are imposed by many of those, in, those institutions that have been developed in a Western European model and diminished or marginalized. Why don't we um, move to your poems? And... If you would, I'd love to have you start off with Against Heaven, which is there's several poems for our listeners. There's several poems in Kemi's book called Against Heaven. So it's throughout. So this one, Kemi, why don't you kind of give us a preamble? of? Sure. There are five title poems in this collection. Uh, I'll start off with the first. Against Heaven is such a... Um, uh, uh, it's a rich title. There are a lot of ways to approach it. And again, the Against Heavens in the collection are finding different angles into that opposition or into that um, uh, sense of touch and uh, alignment. And so I think this first poem, uh, it's the first Against Heaven because I feel like it is the proper thesis and the other against heavens are looking at really important uh, alternate angles. But uh, I wanted to start with this one to set the groundwork for the rest of the collection. It operates as a double golden shovel. It's not the only double golden shovel in the book. There are a few that play with this form. And that means that the first words and the last words of each line are coming from different sources. And this one uh, the first words are coming from a song by Saba, where he sings, uh, there's heaven all around me. And the last words come from a song by Nikakim, where he sings, what if heaven's right here? This is against heaven. There's earth, amethyst, cherries in heat, trees drooling sugar, 
midnight's blue song. So what heaven? That kingdom hold by a coy god's touch, where green and the river began. If all father tells it, first you slave and shiver and shuck and die and die for heaven's around back gate to budge loose at the bent speck of you. Lies, no doors, no lines, look right. Me and mine kissed alive, greening, curl up and chime against us. The river's born here. This poem is just lovely to me in so many ways. I'm going to take a pause for us here right now. You're listening to the High Poetry Collective at KSQD 90.7 FM, Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella, and we are talking today with Kemi Alibi, whose book, Against Heaven, won the Academy of American Poets First Book Award. So this poem, I think, is such a great one in that it begins, it essentially begins the book and follows for me your dive into the erotic that's so, that's threaded throughout this book. And of course you have that, that gorgeous epigraph at the beginning by Audre Lorde, which I don't know if you want to read that, but it's, it's such a gorgeous one. And I think it's as Audrey is, She's um, mind-blowing and mind-opening, So, and she does it so well in that quote. I'm so glad you put that one in there. Yes, I'd gladly read it. Um, it's from Uses of the Erotic, The Erotic is Power, uh, which is an essay that uh, grounds so much of the book. So I needed to include something from it, and this is the most resonant passage for me that guides a lot of the poems. She writes... The erotic is a measure between the beginnings of our sense of self and the chaos of our strongest feelings. It is an internal sense of satisfaction to which, once we have experienced it, we know we can aspire. For having experienced the fullness of this depth of feeling and recognizing its power in honor and self-respect, we can require no less of ourselves. And so much of the book is uh, um, an exploration of what it means to truly encounter the erotic and not just in its sexual sense. In this essay, uh, the erotic is being defined much more expansively than that. But the understanding that once we have that encounter with true desire, whatever interrupts that relationship must go, cannot stand. And in my uh, poetics and in my politics, there is this grounding in the notion of pleasure and all of the systems that require our estrangement to function, all the systems that require our estrangement from our own bodies, from one another, from the earth, are systems that cannot stand because mm -hmm. that relationship is um, must be baseline. And once we encounter the ecstatic nature of that relationship, uh, we need to hold on to it. Mm -hmm. And that does require then the abolition of so many of these systems that require our estrangement. Absolutely. And there's such a sense for me of, of 
deconstruction of, of implosion that's going on currently with so many of our systems that you are echoing the political times with this book and, and taking us as poets should and can do to the possible next steps. And that's why I love that this poem is at the beginning because it's, it's and Audra's quote is doing that is look at this. How can we look at things differently? How can we, how can we move forward in a way that that is honoring the body and not honoring the systems? Yeah, we have, we have set, especially since um, I know that you've got a strong, had a strong religious upbringing, I believe. And I did too. And of course the culture's very much based there. So we, it's all about that deconstructing those things as well with a, a sense that we are not going to fall apart if we do that. In fact, we most likely will fall together. So that's why I love this, you know, the river's born here. The end of this poem is just a, such a gracious, open-armed sentiment toward that beginning. The river's born here. So thank, thank you so much for that reading. Yeah, thank you for, for reading it. I, and I, I love the way you read your poems. Oh, thank you. It's a fine art, reading one's poetry, I think. So let's, let's go to another one of your poems. The other thing that, and maybe you want to talk a little bit about this before you read this next poem, which I'm not even going to say the title yet because I don't want to go there yet. But the, the other thing that I noticed in your and loved about your poems is their sonic quality, is their musicality. There is such rich music. And as a lover myself of sound and what it does to the body and what it does to our ear and what it does to our tongue. I, I loved this next poem. Um, you do it throughout in this book, but this poem in particular, I think has some real juice to it. So take us away on the next one. Sure. Um, the power of the sonic is um, really important to me. I think poems should live in the air and live in the ear. And so the musicality of this collection uh, feels like uh, the, the lyric was pulling me along. I really rely on the lyric to animate. Uh, and so thank you for that, that um, note. <laughs> this next poem um, has music in it. I, I, like so many of my poems do, they have actual lyrics from songs. This one included, it's another golden shovel. This one is titled, A Financial Planner Asks About My Goals or Golden Shovel with Cardi B's Money. Never touch starved again, forever a chub-bellied baby sexed big. Skin a heat-mapped catalog of hands, still wet, still grasping, still blood-fed. Behind every steam-slammed door, play plush beds as good as checks. Whole home stitched with only these rooms, only this near rip big. Kitchen table, perfect island for the stranding. Meals propped heaven large. Backyard, a honey dripped grove named Eden. Ripe land of no bills. Whatever drops first, spice adorned. Sauce slicked back to front. Splayed open slow, tempting a spill. 
grateful to be devoured, like I'll make my giggling groommates. Spit-tethered hips turned tender, flipped down, smeared open growls, or whole wedding cakes, or any drown we like. Just measure by the fistful how thick this slick can coat a sigh. Add ten, and that'd be balm enough to dizzy trip my lonely and her cartwheels. Phew. I just love this one. Uh, just measured by the fistful, how thick this slick can coat a sigh. That's brilliant. Love the sound in here. And there's something about this and several of your poems that reminds me of Patricia Smith. That's she's got that same sonic musicality in her poems, and also that that raw anger and. I, I don't know if she's part of your canon, and, but I'm sure she's part of your influence. She's the reason I'm a poet, for real. Um, Patricia Smith, I saw, well, for the first time when I was 18. And I'd already been writing poems as a um, high school student and um, as a young person. And I'd already encountered her work and had been blown away by it. But I still remember the first time I heard her read and the way that her poems just transform a room, rearrange the molecules of everyone present. And from that day, I thought, oh, I didn't realize poetry could do this. And I've been studying her and adoring her ever since. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense <laughs> to me. She does. She has the power. She's incredible. Yeah. Her musicality is, I mean, she deserves um, uh, so much praise for the way that I think that she's transformed contemporary poetry and the um, uh, way that she has also taught so many young poets and um, embraced the spoken word and the word on the page. Um, she's just such a teacher to so many of us, uh, even if we've never been in a classroom with her. So definitely one of my biggest influences. Yeah, the Hive was really fortunate to have her. Ellen Bass brought her here and we had her um, uh, read her poems at our local museum and it was packed. And like you said, there, there's just... There's an electricity that Patricia brings to things. There's a, a dignity and a impulse that is so powerful when she reads. She's commanding the room with her voice. So I see that in you too. And I'm really happy that it's continuing. That's the nicest thing anyone could say to me. Um, every, everyone listening should read Patricia Smith's incendiary art because um, the words leap off the page. They really do. Yeah, it's an amazing book. The other, so this is a, a oh, I wanted you to, to explain to our listeners who may not know what a golden shovel is. Sure. So Terence Hayes, brilliant poet, uh, invented a form called the golden shovel after um, Gwendolyn Brooks's poetry. Uh, the golden shovel in its original form takes a Gwendolyn Brooks poem, uses those words as the N words for lines created by the poet. And so um, uh, Hayes has golden shovels, has invited other poets to create a whole anthology of golden shovels after Gwendolyn Brooks's work. Uh, and the golden shovel, as I 
use it in Against Heaven, doesn't draw its end words or sometimes beginning words from Gwendolyn Brooks's poetry. It draws them from many songs. Uh, there's a speech in there that um, it, it's, is used for the, um, the text. So poets have remixed this form in, in many different ways, but I always, um, it's so important to, to name Terence Hayes, to name Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, um, especially because Brooks's poetry is so important to me, and as I name in as I uh, in the in the notes of Against Heaven, I uh, name a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks that was so important to me. Um, there, uh, you know, to those who want to die young, um, and there is a um, so much in Against Heaven that's grappling with the existential danger that Black people are in. Um, there is a poem against heaven that's a blackout of a news story uh um uh, the news story describing the steep rise and suicide among black people um and this is not just local to chicago it's national it's um severe with young black girls too and uh gwendolyn brooks writes to the young who want and to the young who want to die graves grow no green that you can use remember green is your color you are spring and so even though the golden shovels don't directly use Brooks's poetry, I feel like they're indebted to her work in uh, holding spring, <laughs> holding uh, um, what it means to want to live and persist on this earth and um, what it means to make a heaven right here, a survivable place for Black people, for young Black people, uh, that we don't have to wait into an, until an afterlife to uh, find uh, the, the space we want to be free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Such an important roadmap ahead for um, our Black community. And I want to, and also with that, just the first poem that you read too, uh, the Against Heaven poem and that that last line talking about the river being here echoes that. So um, Gwendolyn, of course, (laughs) did pave the way. Okay, we're going to uh, stop a minute here again for our station identification. You're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective here at KSQD 90.7 M Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella. And if you just tuned in, we're talking to Kemi Alibi. You can find the Hive Poetry Collective at Hive Poetry on Twitter or at the Hive Poetry Collective on Facebook. Our website can be found at hivepoetry.org, where you'll also find all our radio shows that are archived there, and you can listen to them at any time. You can also find them on Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive our tri-yearly newsletter, uh, go to highpoetry.org and subscribe. We'd love to tell you what we're up to. So Kimmy, thank you for that last one. Um, I'd like to go to uh, the next one, which um, I think is really an interesting poem. So, if, if you could um, read for us, if you will, The Lion Tamer's Daughter Learns the Rules. The Lion Tamer's Daughter Learns the Rules. 
Your body is the inside of the nearest man's fist. Walk to the store and back without disappearing. Pick one. Hoop. Leash. Whip. When someone bumps into you, roll the die. Even. Apologize. Odd. Apologize. Pick one. Circus. Zoo. Parade. Pick two. Missing. Gutted. Stuffed. Your voice is a sidewalk crack. Keeper of the mother spine. Speak and it breaks. Scream and poof. Salt. Pick one. Pass. Pass. Pick two. Pass. Pass. Winner takes shape. Loser. Salt. To start. This is a wild poem. I love this poem. Thank you so much for reading that one. I'm... I'm struck and I wish our listeners could see this poem on the page. You know, there's something about hearing and the way Kemi reads is, I'm sorry, they, the way they read is so, um, it captures how it is on the page, but there's single words throughout this um, that, really strengthen what this poem is about. And I know that uh, for me, I, I'm, I'm anxious to hear your uh, description of this poem because it was a little opaque for me. So I noticed in the spots where you have three words, hoop, leash, whip, circus, zoo, parade, missing, gutted, stuffed. And that the first three are, are tools of, of violence and punishment. The second three are really, they're freak words, they're words for where freaks are visible, I think. And I don't necessarily mean freaks in a pejorative sense, but freaks as identified by the culture. And then the last one, uh, they're all violated, words about violation or violations that happen. So there's so, so much power in those words. And I would love to hear you talk about this poem. Yes, this poem is a part of a series that exists throughout the book. There is an arc of poems about the lion tamer's daughter. This one being the lion, lion tamer's daughter learns the rules. And the others are the lion tamer's daughter versus. There's versus the whip. There's versus full moon and Leo. There's versus the ledge. And then lastly, there's a, a map of this uh, transformed lion tamer's daughter. And this poem in particular is setting up, um, I've, I was reading a lot about games at the time and the function of games in our culture. And was just really fascinated by 
um, what popular games mean for uh, popular ideas in one's culture. And so this Lion Tamer's daughter character is um, has inherited the uh, ideas, uh, the survival mechanisms of the Lion Tamer. Um, uh, and really, uh, to bring something that is not present in the book, I would often get in conversation or rather receive lecture from my father about the lion and how man tamed the lion. It's kind of, kind of a pseudo history lesson um, about what it meant for man to have tamed the king of the jungle. Um, and that pseudo history lesson really stayed with me because I this whole collection is grappling with power and what it means to um, uh, uh, find one's own survival strategies, navigating various systems of power. The lion tamer's daughter needs to navigate a world in which um, the primary mechanism of power is this power over relationship that has um, established this dominance over the natural world. And as the daughter of the lion tamer, um, this person uh, has not necessarily inherited any of that power, um, but is familiar with those survival strategies. So is subjected to the same um, uh, to the same power over um, hierarchical uh, relationship is is on the losing end of that of that power relationship, and so I wanted this poem to really um, uh, make it plain what it means to move through the world without any actual power, um, without any actual options. You roll the die, evens apologize, odd is apologize. Um, there are so many ways in this poem that uh, really the 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 tone of the game rules. Uh, versus the actual dire nature of what's being presented, that their only options <laughs> are, are um, horrible ones. Mm -hmm. And that's the mandate. That's the game. Um, so this poem is hopefully laying out for the other Lion Tamer's Daughter poems, um, the, the lose-lose uh, that the Lion Tamer's Daughter is moving through. And then how these poems function in this collection uh, there, are, there are different sections, and the sections either begin with one of the Against Heaven title poems, or they begin with The Lion Tamer's Daughter. And so much of this poem is also trying to um, explore what it means to heal an estrangement between uh, humans and life on Earth, <laughs> to, um, to make that separation uh, uh, to, to, to move away from that separation. And there's something about the power over relationship of the lion tamer and the rules as explained by the lion tamer that is, that is complete estrangement and subjugation. So as these poems unfold throughout the book, uh, intertwined with Against Heaven, it's kind of this, um, a, a series of um, experiments with what it means to have inherited these survival strategies that don't actually work um, and that uh, and to move towards a different understanding of life on earth and life beyond it. So I find a lot of, um, some people find a lot of humor in this poem. <laughs> a lot of my Black queer friends, because it's very painful, but it also makes it very plain what it means to have no good options within the system of power that we've inherited. Well, and putting it in within the the context of of the of the rules too gives gives 
as you said, gives some humor to it. You know, it's, it's stark, it's black and white. It's, you know, you either move backwards or you move backwards. So, um, yeah, I, I really appreciate your, your, uh, speaking to this poem and, and helping me understand it, especially as it relates to the other parts of the book, especially the intertwining with Against Heaven poems in the book. And really that the, the powerful part of this book, which is the, the body and the subjugation of the body versus the, the ecstasy and liberation of the body. So that they are they're dancing. There's a dance here in this book to me that's going on about deconstruction and reconstruct the second reconstruct a better construction of what's going on. Um, so thank you for that one too. Um, let's let's go to another one, Cami. Um, I think next we have uh, another one that is um, also sonically a, a beautiful poem. Um, so I'm hoping you'll share that next one that you, you brought for us. Sure. Um, would it be a wedding? Is that what it would, would like be to a go? wedding? Okay, great. It's time for a wedding. Uh, okay. This poem is called A Wedding or What We Unlearned from Descartes. And just a little note, Descartes famously um, theorized a distinction between the mind and the body, um, a distinction that both I and the speaker of this poem are trying to unlearn. Beloved, last night I doused us in good bourbon, struck a match between our teeth, slid the lit head lip to chest, throat zippered open and spilling. Our union demands a sacrifice. Take my masks, my wretched, immaculate children. Sharp smiles bored with cavities. Braids thick with hair slashed off lovers as they slept. The masks grew limbs and danced. So last night, to the fire, plank pushed cackling as they bubbled and split, then dreamless dark, then mercy, somehow morning reached for me. Sun found us swaddled in sweat through sheets, gauze and salve while night wore off, O body, always healing despite me. O body, twin spy, tasked against my plot to rush the dying, Guardian of the next world's sweets, yes, I'll lick this salt. Yes, I'll wait our turn, because today we hold hands, mother each other, bathe in warm coconut oil. Our union, our long baptism, oh body, all I forced you to know of thirst, yes body, you are owed a whole lake, yes body. I'll kiss our wrists, hold them to our ears, and spend our days losing to the waves. This is gorgeous. I love the anaphora in this poem too. 
Uh, oh, body. Yes, body. There's something about it that is Whitman-esque to me. Uh, I don't, you know, there's a new, all of us are living within the legacy of that, the canon. And Whitman, I think, did a lot to honor the body and the erotic. So, but there's, with the O of Whitman, this, there's a subversion here to, to that as well, I think. Uh, that that you're you're bringing into this but it is it is so plush and rich and diving into that pleasure of the body that is denied on so many fronts do you want and it it it, it goes with your with the um your epigraph that opens it of course so you want to talk a little bit about that Sure. Um, I love that you named the anaphora and how that's working um, on you. For me, there's something, um, there's a bit of spell work that I hope is happening at the end of this poem, because um, that wedding, that, uh, that connection between the mind and body is something that needs to be invoked it is not necessarily something that is inherent, especially as um, the speakers, the many speakers in this collection are navigating uh, um, this world and it's and the systems estranging us from our own bodies. And so the Nafra in this poem uh, being a bit of a binding spell, <laughs> uh, a bit of a um, re, uh, an opportunity to reconnect the mind and the body in that way. Um, I love this poem and it's, um, you know, place where it is in the collection as really the collection's turn. Um, uh, the hope being that the collection is charting kind of this underworld journey, <laughs> the speakers navigating these systems um, and the bodies, the reconnection to the body being an opportunity to reconnect to our, our power and the um, uh, reconnect to one another and reconnect to the earth. So I think this poem is doing some heavy lifting in this collection and the anaphora, that the sense of repetition uh, being its binding spell, hopefully doing a little bit of work on the reader. And I think it does. And I think, you, you know, the, the, the Cartesian title too, and, and pushing against that uh, opens us up towards that spell because it's very much a case of the mind isn't the only singular thing we need to be listening to. And so that I feel as though you've done that so well in creating that spell that you're talking about that moves us through this poem and lands us in this, this place where we spend our days losing to the waves. And it's, it's fabulous. And I love, I also very much appreciate the, the, the attention that you paid to constructing this collection, how you've, how you've woven it and, and very carefully made decisions about what went where and why. Yeah, the long poem of the collection felt really important to me, even if it's not, even if it feels a little um, opaque to readers. To me, the collection is really a map 
primarily for me. I'm charting all of these different um, uh, ways that um, uh, the the different speakers are navigating these systems and finding their way out. So reground and the lion tamer's daughter learns the rules. You know, it ends in this cliffhanger of to start. You know, it's like, where do we begin? How do we navigate these systems? And so th- there are there are things that are that may read as opaque to the reader. Um, but my hope is that in subsequent collections, uh, this debut is helping me understand the the long journey uh, escaping from the the colonized minds. There's another epigraph at the beginning that's Tourmaline, a, a brilliant filmmaker. It's a tweet by Tourmaline and they wrote, um, when we say abolish police, we also mean the cop in your head and in your heart. And there's so many ways that this Against Heaven collection is uh, attempting to abolish that cop and Absolutely. to me, the yeah. collection is um, moving through that process of abolition. And so the, the specificity of where the poems are placed uh, um, is something I thought a lot about. Yeah. And- Hang on just a second, Kimmy. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I've got to do our station identification here. You're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective at KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. And we are here today with Kemi Alabi, who is talking about the construction of her book, Against Heaven. I, yes, and to, to your point, I, um, you know, the, uh, Jennifer Benka, who is the executive director of the Academy of American Poets, uh, included in the little write-up when members received your book, which is where I learned about you, that um, you wrote what became Against Heaven to Resist Annihilation. So that that very much i think all of our conversation today is is talking about that that's the that's the rough and ready statement right um (laughs) so yeah i i very much appreciate uh this a wedding or what we unlearned from descartes for all of those things and especially uh or not especially but inclusive of the masks that are um plank pushed cackling as they bubbled and split. It's gorgeous. So let's turn to what I think will probably be uh, the last poem of today's uh, show by Kemi. Uh, And this is another one. Uh, This comes at the end of the collection. Uh, Kemi, can you read this uh, last, uh, would you be willing to read this last Against Heaven? Absolutely. This is the first Against Heaven I wrote, and it comes at the end as um, uh, a call to action. And it's really holding the spirit of that tourmaline epigraph that I shared earlier. Against Heaven. I used to pray to a man-faced God, kept his whip beneath my bed, set alarms for daybreak lashings, pressed white cotton to the flay, made flags of the blood soak, raised them from my window, called this worship. <laughs> 
dreamt heaven a jury small as a county where nobody looked like me. Winged bailiffs plucked my cuffs to trap my cousin in a hot coal cage, called this roulette freedom, licking my raw wrists. Which kill blew my tatters down, peeled me to the blackest jade, remothered me to the squad car blaze, loot and shard my siblings now. Which kill? Forgive me. I feared the devil's prison. Miss faith, the sheriff, and the sky. Why? Which kill? Forgive me, family. I miscountried. Our swarming anthem of my true homeland. Heaven and hell are the same empire. Half slipped, gasping, clutching our hems. Ungoverned, by the lie, with fists and flames, we cleave. This really does go back uh, to that epigraph that you described, Tourmaline, is that? Yes. The filmmaker. I love that notion of the cop in our heads. Uh, we all have that, I think, to some degree, but certainly <laughs> the Black community is working with that one on a level that's much beyond. And the music in this one, too, is just gorgeous, dreamt heaven a jury small as a county where nobody looked like me. And sonically later on, which kill blew my tatters down, peeled me to the blackest jade. Those are just gorgeous. And here again, of course, there's that, I find again that, that uh, tension between church and state is, is so much a part of this, uh, that heaven in our minds <laughs> that's been used to control us. Absolutely. Um, I wrote this collection while I was working with reproductive justice organizers and activists as a cultural strategist, as a narrative strategist. And so much that's underneath reproductive oppression is um, baked into Christian hegemony as we are clearly seeing with this um, SCOTUS decision and the communities that are celebrating it. So it was very important for me to be able to explore that type of religious architecture on a deeply personal level. How have we internalized, um, uh, no matter what we practice or believe, how are some of these beliefs, beliefs um, baked into how we see the world? And what would it require for us to be able to dislodge some of that thinking in order to access the, the freedom we crave? Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially I think uh, <laughs> the uh, entrenched notion that kindness and compassion are carried or restricted to that religious notion that's aligned with our 
conceptions of heaven and hell and in my mind certainly are not so uh yeah have you you know i know that uh you are working with the um echoing ida echoing ida collection and um do you would you just mention briefly there where people can find that because i think that's an important collection for people to look at too Sure. This collection was created with the writers and organizers of Echoing Ida who are grounded in reproductive justice movements, Black women and non-binary writers who, um, through their journalism, uh, um, uh, amplified reproductive justice um, and its intersections with so many different movement spaces. This is out from Feminist Press, uh, came out early 2021. And I think that those pieces in that collection are as relevant as ever. Good, good. That's great. And will there be another one that's going to come out? I truly hope that those writers in the future will um, uh, gather some more work for that collection. Echoing Ida as a group is no longer writing together, but those writers and organizers are still out there um, mm -hmm. in the fight, um, telling the truth in the lineage of Ida B. Wells, which is what the group is named after. And she famously said the way to write wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. And that's what they're still doing. Excellent, yeah. And Ida B. Wells wound up in Chicago, which is where you are now too. So there's a little bit of uh, synchronicity or our lineage there, I think that's happening, especially with uh, um, echoing Ida. Um, these are just gorgeous poems, Kemi. And I'm so appreciative of your being able to be here with us today to bring them to uh, our local Santa Cruz community. Um, and especially I think shining the light on the reproductive issues that are so central to uh, the black community, to the Latinx community, uh, to those people who are often, <laughs> often uh, yeah, compromised because of those decisions and definitely are compromised because of that SCOTUS decision. Uh, so I'm happy to have, have you mention that today because that's a real and very alarming turn of events. So I um, appreciate that. Anything else that you would like to mention to our readers with, I think we've got just a few more minutes um, I want to be sure and mention again that we've been talking to Kemi Alibi, whose book uh, Against Heaven is really a compilation that has so much intellect and legacy from the Black community, especially the Black poetry community, that I think um, people should be reading it. So I'm really happy that Claudia picked you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, what an honor. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful to uh, have some time to chat with you and reach out to your listeners. Um, Claudia Rankin is such an important poet to me. Um, her work has very um, literally saved my life. And I, just to end, I want to um, shout out the collection Don't Let Me Be Lonely, because Claudia Rankin's work, she's known so much for Citizen, for all of the 
she has such an amazing body of work. Um, but she has explicitly named the ways that she discusses um, Black intimacy, Black loneliness, and this being so central in her work. And when I think about the, the opportunity of Against Heaven, uh, I think about what it means to be healing these estrangements, to understand that um, um, the uh, both the estrangement between the personal and the political, and also as uh, we started to discuss in A Wedding or What We Learned from Descartes, the estrangement between the mind and the body, uh, the musicality that you're describing, uh, I think uh, the sonic can help readers move out of the, the lens of experiencing a poem purely from an intellectual framework and allowing the poem to do some work on a somatic level, allowing the poem to be received um, uh, by the body. So I, I hope that as uh, readers and listeners approach this collection, um, they uh, allow the music to work its magic, uh, to heal that estrangement between the mind and the body and allow um, uh, the intellectual perception of the poem to uh, also uh, be in a marriage with how the poem is uh, feeling on a sensory level. Absolutely. And I think you've done it. So congratulations on this book. And thank you once again for being with us here today on KSQDFM. 90.7 with the Hive Poetry Collective. Thanks for tuning in. Be for the honey, be for the. Mm-hmm.